will you do? Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, this morning we ask that you would meet us through your word by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would open our eyes to see Jesus. Pray that you would, would open our eyes that we would see Jesus and be captivated by him, by who he is and what he's done for us. Meet us this morning in your grace and kindness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as we move through this story, I want to ask this morning that you would, would, would put yourself in it that you would seek to, to experience the events of this night with me. We're going to look at the whole story of Peter's denials in two acts. We're not going to read through them verse by verse, but we will make our way through the whole story. So let's start by looking at Act 1, which covers verses 30 to 35. Starting in verse 30, Matthew writes, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, here we find the setting. The Passover celebration is over. Jesus has eaten his last meal, and he knows that he's on his way to his betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion. This, after all, is why he's come. Jesus and his disciples, they sing a hymn, and now silently they make their way down the stairs out into the evening. As they get out, they see that night has fallen on the city. And it's not long before they find themselves under that, that looming giant shadow of the temple. As they make their way out to a garden. To a garden, as we learned last week, where Jesus will cry out in agony to God the Father to let this cup pass by him. Somewhere along this journey, Jesus breaks the silence. He says, one of you this evening, or he says, all of you will fall away from me. Turning to those he spent the last three years teaching and training, pouring his life into, he tells them that they will desert him. Can you just imagine how difficult it would be for Jesus to utter these words? Perhaps you can, you can feel the lump swelling in his throat as he struggles to get these words out. And if it was hard for Jesus to say, it was even harder for Peter to hear. Can't you just see his facial expression change? Peter's offended. He is outraged by the accusation that he, Peter, the rock, the one that Jesus is going to build his church upon, will betray Jesus. In verse 33, we see that he responds, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. You can hear the arrogance in his tone as he, as he seeks to correct Jesus. He's saying, you know, Jesus, you might be right about all these other guys, but you forgot there's an exception. You must have, must have missed that in the footnotes. Years ago, I can remember reading a book called 12 Ordinary Men by John MacArthur. And, I can, and I'll never forget his description of Peter. The subtitle for his chapter on Peter is The Apostle with the Foot-Shaped Mouth. Isn't this a good description of Peter? Time and time again, we see Peter open his mouth 
in what I'm sure he thinks is going to be a moment of brilliance, only to say the most foolish thing. And here he's no different. He says, even if everyone else leaves, I never will. Open mouth, insert foot. And as the narrative continues, Jesus tells Peter that he is right about one thing. He will be the exception. But it's not at all what he expected. In verse 34, Jesus responds to Peter. He says, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Rather than merely falling away like the other disciples, Peter will deny Jesus. Despite his claims of loyalty, within hours, Peter will disown his Savior three times. But Peter, unable to bear the thought of Jesus' words, in his typical boldness declares, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. And for the second time, Peter attempts to correct Jesus. Open mouth, insert foot. Only this time, Peter's not alone. In his show of confidence, he's roused the troops as all the other disciples start chiming in, saying the same thing, saying that they would never deny Jesus. This is Act 1, the prediction. Now let's fast forward to Act 2, Peter's actual denials in verses 69 to 75. As the scene opens, Jesus has prayed in Gethsemane. He's been betrayed by Judas. He's been arrested and been brought before before the high priest Caiaphas and the council. And here he's the defendant in a sham trial, having been declared verdict, having been declared guilty before the court was even brought into session. And while this trial is going on, Matthew shines the spotlight back on Peter. In verse 69, we read that Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. Now this is significant. In verse 56, Matthew tells us that all of the disciples, that when Jesus was arrested, all of the disciples fled. But here we see not Peter. Summoning up the courage, he's determined to not fall away. He will not deny Jesus. And so he follows the crowd of soldiers at a distance, perhaps following their flickering lights as they make their way through the garden to the temple courtyard. And having arrived, Peter sees a crowd gathering around, gathered around a fire. And wanting to, to blend in, he just he casually walks over, wanting to make himself one of the crowd. His plan seems to be going well until a, a burst of the fire shines light on his face. And a little servant girl speaks up accusingly, but with a bit of curiosity asks him, You also, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. And the moment of truth has come. How will Peter respond? Maybe this time he won't stick his mouth in his foot. But in front of all those gathered around the fire, he says, I don't know what you mean. Facing the gentlest possible challenge from a servant girl, Peter denies that he was with Jesus. And as his heart begins to race, he he senses it's not smart for him to be here anymore. And so he makes his way out of the courtyard into the darker entrance. Surely he'll be safer out here. But as soon as he gets there, he's confronted by another servant girl. 
Only this time, instead of directly accusing him, she utters to all the bystanders around, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. You can hear the contempt in her tone as she says, of Nazareth. I mean, certainly nothing good can come from Nazareth. And without even thinking about it, for the second time, Peter denies Jesus. He says, I don't know the man. And this alone would have been bad enough, but he doesn't doesn't stop there. He makes an oath. He's calling on God as his witness that he's telling the truth as he perjures himself. How could he do this? I mean, in some way, Peter's actions could be understandable if he was facing some high-powered government official. You know, I think if it was, if it was someone like, like Jack Bauer who was interrogating him, someone who was willing to go to any lengths to get the information he needed, that, that would make sense. But Matthew is so intentional to highlight that it's two servant girls, probably 10 to 15 years old. I mean, girls not much older than Mackenzie. Having denied Jesus twice, I wonder what Peter's thinking. Is is he aware of what he's doing? Or has he completely forgotten his bold statements from earlier that evening? We don't know. But what we do know is after about an hour, another group of bystanders approaches Peter and accuses him for the third time. They say to him, certainly you are one of them, for your accent betrays you. When uh, When I was working at United Technologies, one of our main assembly plants was in, was in Foley, Alabama, right there on the Gulf Coast. And because of the various projects, the various events that we had going on, people were always traveling between these various plants. And as I could easily figure out in a, in a room full of, of United Technologies workers as we gathered for an event, as I could easily figure out which one of them was from Foley based on their southern accent. In the same way here, Peter stuck out like a sore thumb because of his Galilean accent. And feeling the pressure now as this, as this group has accused him, Peter begins to evoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know the man. Peter, who had proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, cannot even bring himself to utter the name Jesus. And for the third time, he denies him. And Matthew tells us in verse 75 that as soon as these words rolled off his tongue, the rooster crows. Jesus turns, perhaps his face already bloodied and bruised, and he meets Peter's eye. And it's in that moment that Christ's prediction rushes back into his conscience. He's gripped with sorrow. We're told that he, he goes out and weeps bitterly, both for what he's done and for what he knows can't be undone. In scene, curtains close. From this point on, Matthew doesn't mention Peter again. This is a, this is a familiar story to all of us, I'm sure. A, a heartbreaking story, nonetheless. Peter, for fear of his life, he denies his Savior. I don't know if you're anything like me, but when you, when you hear a story like this, it can just be, be so easy for us to just shake it off, just kind of keep going. So easy to think, man, what a terrible, terrible person Peter is. I'm so glad that I'm not like him. I mean, I would never do the things that he did. 
of friends, even though Peter might not be the Bible character that we most want to identify with, the truth is we can all relate with Peter, especially the Peter we just saw. So as we consider why God has given us this story, one that's recorded in all four Gospels, I just want to briefly point out two lessons that we can learn from Peter's failure. I want us to see two quick lessons that are meant to give us hope in the midst of our failures. The first lesson we learn from Peter is that we must never forget our weakness. In both acts, Peter's weakness is on full display. In fact, if there's anything that Peter doesn't want us to miss, it's Peter's weakness. From his first words to his last, we see how feeble he really is. And the truth is, we're just like Peter, the stumbling, bumbling disciple. Can't you relate? I mean, aren't you aware of how imperfect your day-to-day life as a Christian can be? How marked by ups and downs it is? I mean, who of, us would he, who of us in here would say that we've lived the perfect Christian life? We all know what it's like to fail. We all know what it's like to have our Christian life marked by a desire for good intentions, to live and act in a certain way, only to fall again and again. This past week, I've really resonated with the novelist Flannery O'Connor, who said that her faith rises and falls like the tides of an invisible sea. Doesn't this summarize our experience of the Christian life? Our progress in sanctification of, of becoming more like Jesus, rising and falling, rising and falling like the tides of an invisible sea. One day experiencing growth only to see it all washed away as the tide falls, and we're right back where we started. That's why Peter's here. Peter's here to teach us to recognize our spiritual weakness. Because we all know what it's like to live in the tension that Paul describes so well in Romans 7. When he writes of his own experience, he says, For I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but, the very, but I do the very thing I hate. There's a there's this spiritual battle going inside of all of our hearts, which is why the Christian life is such a struggle. This helps us explain how Peter can go one minute from proclaiming the profound mysteries of God to denying his Savior. In his weakness, Peter sins badly. He does the unthinkable. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we've all had these moments. We've all sinned grievously against God and against others. We've all done things that we wish we hadn't. We've all said things that we wish we could take back the second they've left our mouth. There are things in our lives that we would give anything to go back in time and change. But it says we become more aware of our weakness that God has promised to be at work in our lives. It says we recognize our spiritual weakness and sin that a couple things will begin to happen in our hearts. First, we see that it will help us have a, have a proper perspective of others. As we remember our weakness, 
it will help us to be more understanding with others. As we see those around us falling into sin, giving into temptations, we won't respond in self-righteousness because we know that we're just like them. I mean, it could easily be you or me on the other side of that conversation. And I think this especially applies to parents with their children. As we come to see the reality of our children's weakness within the reality of our own weakness, it will help us to become more patient. I mean, after all, aren't children by nature weak? And this can also help us persevere in caring for those who constantly seem to be struggling with the same thing. I mean, if you're anything like me, you might have the tendency to just get frustrated with that, you know? Week after week in home group, week after week after talking and hearing the same struggle, the same concern. You, you might be tempted to just get frustrated, think to yourself, just stop. Why in the world do you keep doing that? Why are you acting that way? You might not be anything like me, but uh, that is me. But, but as we remember Peter, we can press on in caring for our friends for our spouse, for our siblings, for our children, knowing that we too are weak. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't call for change. It doesn't mean that we never press others on into maturity in Christ. We certainly do these things. We must do these things. But we always need to do them within, within the context of our weakness. We, we do these things aware that all of us are stumbling, bumbling disciples, prone to failure, prone to weakness. So remembering our weakness, it helps us to have a proper perspective, not only of others, but also of ourselves. You see, we don't have to run around pretending that everything's perfect, that we have everything under control. You know, I think of the miracle of the church parking lot. You know, you can be screaming at each other one moment in the car, tensions raising, and you, you turn onto Memorial Drive, and all of a sudden... Faces are happy, people are smiling, the kids are calm, frustration's gone, meet your friend, hey, how are you doing? Things are great, things are wonderful, thanks for asking. You know, but, we, but as we're aware of our weakness, we don't have to do that. As we gather together in our home groups, in our Bible studies, wherever you're receiving care, we can be open and honest about our struggles. We can be open and honest about the ways that we're tempted to sin. We can all freely acknowledge the ways that we're aware of our need for God's grace because we're all weak and prone to sin. And this should lead us to, to cultivate a posture of humility, to see ourselves as we truly are, as we express our dependence upon God. This can help us to, to humbly express our dependence upon God in prayer as we ask him for the grace and the strength that we need to live the way he's called us to. We see this as we can humbly express our dependence upon God in our, in our confession of sin, as we express the awareness of our own sin in our lives and our need for God's grace. Because after all, isn't that what God has promised to us? I was mindful of what Peter would later write, Peter who lived this, lived this here in the story we see, where he writes that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we acknowledge our weakness, we are, we are putting ourselves in a prime place to receive God's grace. Which brings us to our second lesson. 
And that's that we must remember that God's grace is greater than our weakness and sin in Christ. In a passage like this, it's good that we, that we pause to identify with Peter. We, we can't miss that. We are Peter in this story. But it's even more important that we see Jesus. Having looked at ourselves, we need to turn our gaze to Christ. Robert McMurray McShane has said, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Because it's when we look to Christ that we see his great love for us. His great love that shines so much brighter against the backdrop of our sin. And we see this so clearly in our text this morning. Look at me in verse 32, verse we passed over earlier. In the same breath that Jesus predicts that his disciples will fall away, he utters these remarkable words. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Church, this statement is pregnant with hope. Jesus is promising his disciples that even after they desert him, even after they abandon him and leave him to face this dark night of the soul alone, he will restore them. And the amazing thing here is it's not just that he will restore them, but he's taking the initiative. Jesus is promising his disciples that he is taking the initiative in bringing about this restoration. Peter doesn't have to wait till he's cleaned himself up. There's not some, some waiting period. He doesn't have to wait till he's, he's met some level of sorrow or repentance before he can come to Jesus. No, like the father in the parable of the prodigal son, who sees his son a far way off, picks up his garment and goes running after him, Jesus runs after Peter. I will go before you to Galilee mentioned earlier that after his denial, Peter's not mentioned again in Matthew's gospel. But thankfully, we're not left guessing what happens when Jesus meets with Peter and his disciples after the resurrection. In John 21, we see the end of the story. John 21. After sharing a meal together, in verses 15 to 19, in his grace, Jesus turns to restore Peter. So they've shared a meal. He he leans down to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And three times, as the tears fill Peter's eyes, he's aware and filled with shame for the way he's acted that night. Not even able to, to bring, his, bring himself to look at Jesus. He just says, Jesus, you know I love you. Yes, Lord, you know I love you. This is an emotional scene, no doubt. But it's a necessary one. In light of Peter's threefold denial, it was fitting that Jesus would three times publicly Restore, restore Peter. What a beautiful picture of God's redeeming grace. This grace that is greater than our sin and weakness because of what Christ has done. 
You see, Jesus was able to fully restore Peter and the other disciples because of what he accomplished in his death and resurrection. Jesus hinted at this earlier when he said, after I'm raised, Jesus knew what was happening. He knew what it would cost him to restore his wayward disciples. And because of what he does, because of what Christ has done, he stands ready to extend his redeeming and restoring grace to me and to you this morning. This is the, this is the beauty of the gospel. That even when our failures seem catastrophic to us, Jesus always sees a way to restore When our failures feel catastrophic to us, when we feel like we've failed and there's nothing that can ever bring us back, there's nothing that can ever undo what we did, Jesus has made a way for restoration. So if you're here this morning and you just, you just feel like you're just plagued by the guilt of past sins, you're just weighed down by the things that you've done, know that Jesus has made a way for true forgiveness, for true healing, for true restoration. Now you, now you might be here and perhaps you're tempted to think, you know, that sounds really nice and all, but you don't, you don't know what I've done. You don't, you don't know anything about me. And you're right. For many of you, I, I, I don't know what you've done, but what I do know is who God is. And the same grace that he freely extended to Peter to cover his past sin is being offered to you right now. So turn to him this morning and receive what he is so willing to give. Look to Jesus, trusting in his life, death, and resurrection and receive the grace and forgiveness that he's offering to you because it's only found in him. You can search and search for this everywhere else, but it'll never come and it'll never satisfy. Only Christ can offer true forgiveness, true restoration. Come to him. And the same is true for, for all of you, for myself here, who, who might just be aware of just their present weakness. If you're here this morning, just very aware of an existing struggle with sin in your life. Perhaps there's a, a specific sin that just seems to have absolute control over your life. Think of something like pornography, something like gossip, something like anger or greed or envy. Really, any, any sin that has just taken control of you, realize that there is hope for you in Christ. Because God's grace that redeems and restores also transforms. It's like, a, it's like a kitchen aid mixer, you know? There's just no end to what God's grace can do. <laughs> Speaking to all the ladies out there. No, I like to use our kitchen aid mixer. You see, you see, it's only God's grace that can take a guy like Peter, a guy with a tendency of putting his mouth in his foot, his foot in his mouth <laughs> and turn him and turn him into a powerful proclaimer of God's word as we see in Acts. You have time this afternoon, flip to Acts 2 and see what God does with, with this stumbling, bumbling disciple so often sticking his foot in his mouth. 
And this very same grace that transformed Peter's life can transform your life too. It can help bring about the change that you so desperately want as God is working in your life to make all things new. So if that's you this morning, I would just invite you to look to Jesus, to turn your gaze away from yourself, away from your sin, and instead look to God's transforming grace to help you. There's no amount of willpower, no amount of human resolve that's going to that's gonna work in your life. It's only God's grace that can bring about true change. So why is this story here? Why has God given us this story? I think it's to help us see our weakness, but more importantly, to remember that God's grace is greater than our weakness and sin in Christ. So church, let's, let's, let's be encouraged. Let's be encouraged of seeing what Jesus is like with a stumbling, bumbling disciple and see what Jesus is like with you and me and our weakness. Let's pray.